So welcome to the next episode of the Can Marketing Save the Planet podcast. And today we are delighted to welcome back the team from Pinwheel, Gavin Shepherd and Rob Cheeswright. Welcome to the podcast. Nice to be back. So we've had a bit of a theme running on the last few episodes of Can Marketing Save the Planet, which is all around nature and biodiversity. We've, of course, had the brilliant Alexandra Pimoron talking about giving uh, nature a voice at the table. And just recently, we had Dr. Sam Sinclair from Biodiversity also talking about biodiversity strategies. Now, today, we're going to be talking to Gavin and Rob about solutions and what organizations can actually be doing. And, you know, this isn't about waiting to do something. This is about doing something literally from the minute you stop listening to this podcast episode. So, Gavin and Rob, do you just want to introduce yourselves? We'll start with you, Gavin, uh, just to remind our listeners of what you do. And we will get into some of the solutions and actions people can take. Yes, thanks, Gemma. It's great to be back. I think we focused a lot on carbon last time that we spoke. Um, and Pinwheel is an organization that helps businesses access what we call beyond value chain mitigation projects. So these are projects in carbon and in biodiversity and in waste and keystone species that go about repairing and restoring some of the damage that's been done over over time to our climate, to our ecosystems, uh, in a way that really helps the planet to heal. Um, and in, in, in that sense, works alongside what an organisation is doing in its own value chain, which is a lot of the stuff that Sam Sinclair was talking about last week. So I'm Gavin Shepherd. I'm the uh, CEO. I'm of the founders and uh, Rob is my uh, co-founder and uh, chief impact officer. So, you know, we're all familiar with COPs and we had the last COP uh, just in November last year. And, you know, many people listening will know that some, there's some big things obviously affecting the carbon space. What are the big themes in the world of biodiversity and what's coming down the track? Obviously, we've got those carbon cops, but if we wind back a year, we had COP15, the biodiversity cop. Yes. And that was like Paris COP in terms of its significance, because it set a global target of protecting 30% of sea and land by 2030, which is scarily now only six years away. Mm. And alongside that, then you get all of the things that flow from that. So all the governments are now committed to do that, but all of the all of us within civil society then will have to play a role. So for businesses, the, the starting gun was fired. It's now time to care about biodiversity and start doing some of the things on biodiversity that you were doing on carbon. And that, that flowed into, in particular, the task force for nature-related disclosures. So for the acronym fans uh, who you have there who have been doing kind of carbon disclosures around CSRD and ISSB and all this stuff for years, and it was painful and horrible and lots of work, it's coming on nature and biodiversity too, but also then tangible action to follow. So it is coming fast down the track and need to treat biodiversity with the same sort of energy and rigour that we have been doing carbon now for the last few years. Fantastic. and. How, you know, when you talk about this urgency, this need now, this acceleration that is happening with biodiversity, and this was kind of following on from the conversation we had with uh, Dr. Samuel Sinclair last time, how bad is the biodiversity crisis? Because we didn't really dive into that to any major detail, but how bad is it? How urgent is it that organisations need to be really starting to think about this? 
I put it on a par with the climate crisis, and there are elements of it that could potentially be more acute and happen much more quickly than the climate crisis. You know, we are reliant on, you know, for food production on nature. Almost everything we do is reliant on nature. So we are, um, we should be as worried about it as we are the climate crisis. In terms of where we stand, you know, we've seen a 69% reduction in living species since 1970 globally. You know, the the Global Planet Living Report and is pretty stark. Uh, in the UK, for instance, we protect about 3% of land and 8% of sea. So we're miles behind the 30%. And, you know, we're in big trouble on this. It's it's probably in terms of performance going less well than carbon, whereas in carbon, we're starting to bend the curve a bit. In biodiversity, we're still in pretty dark waters. I, I, I think there's a... Um there's a point of interconnectedness with with climate as well on 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 this in terms of how bad it is and how worrying it is the, the there are there are interconnected tipping points between climate and biodiversity and the climate crisis is making the biodiversity crisis worse and the biodiversity crisis and the crisis in nature is making the climate crisis worse mm. uh, now the flip side of that is that a lot of the answers are to be found in these two respective groups as well. So a lot of the answers to the climate crisis are around repair in nature and biodiversity. Um, and and so, you know, in that, in that sense, I think this is where you can get some really reasonably quick outcomes, actually, from, from concentrating on these as two sides of the same coin rather than thinking about them as very separate strategies. Yeah, because one, one effectively, if we, if we tackle one, the other one almost starts to write itself and likewise, as you say, the other way around. So... Let's get into the solutions, because that is what we're really keen to talk about today, because, you know, at Can Mark Share the Planet, we partner with you and, and support three of the solutions out there. So, you know, how do we get nature back on track and how do we also talk about it? Because, you know, as Dr. Sam said, person, you know, biodiversity is personal. People love nature and and, and, and they, they have, you know, memories and they have lots that they can personally sort of uh get involved and it makes you feel better and all of those wonderful things so you know how do we get back on track getting people to understand really understand though the importance of it but also understand that you know we can all be doing something uh to start that restorative process so i mean dr sam was right in that because we all understand nature nature is a thing that we all have an affinity with in a way that we just don't understand what a ton of carbon is it's a really good place to start it you know, it sings to our hearts, it it can inspire, there's, there's real beauty there. And that enables the, the kind of storytelling and magic, actually, that marketers, the people that will love this podcast, are really good at. So we've the real potential here is for brands to really grab this, marketing teams to really grab this and make it their own. The thing that I think we sometimes get lost in with sustainability is we believe it's that there's an expert somewhere who can do this. There's a sustainability team and it should be for them. And what we need to do is spend two years working up a great sustainability strategy. That does need to happen. But actually, why not grab it as marketers? Why not grab it as storytellers and really do something with this? Because there is amazing work that can be done for the planet, but also stuff that build brands. So I'll just give a couple of examples of, of amazing activities that our clients are currently funding, as you say, including the podcast, you know, Sea Wilding and Project Seagrass, restoring seagrass in UK waters. They're amazing habitats with thousands of ocean and fish species that they protect. Also, one of the best carbon sequestering plants in the world. Seagrass, depending on species, can sequester carbon up to 35 times faster than terrestrial trees. 
digging buns, earth smiles in Kenya, in Tanzania, creates watercourses within the soil, enables it to re-green. Amazing carbon benefits, but also brings back the biodiversity and lowers the, the local temperature. So it's also a climate adaptation piece. Keystone species like wolves you mentioned, which are absolutely vital. The process of trophic cascade, where if you introduce a keystone species or protect a keystone species, it affects the whole ecosystem. We need to do lots more of that. Um, some of our clients are funding sea turtle protection um, around the world because they, as a keystone species, have amazing impacts throughout an ocean ecosystem. Also protecting seagrass as it happens. Rewilding, rewiggling rivers, removing dams, all of these things, all of which are pinwheel projects that our clients can fund, can be funded now, right now, and make an impact both locally and globally on biodiversity and then onwards to climate and both mitigation and adaptation. Yeah, and I think that's that's the key, isn't it? Because in the podcast, for those that listen to the one with uh, Dr. Sam Sinclair, and if you haven't, you know, then as part of this series, we urge you to do that. He talked about often these projects taking a long time to pull together these strategies because it is change, isn't it? It's it's massive transformation. If you've been doing your the way that you've been operating in a certain way, and there's been certain damage caused, uh, and you want to you want to now reverse that, this can mean huge investment, huge change, huge transformation, and of course, we all know that that takes time. So. I guess what you're saying is when we're saying right now, because that was the that was the point we were talking with Dr. Sam is that it, this is great that organizations want to have a strategy, but you can't take three to five years to bring that strategy together because at the same time as when that strategy is being developed, you need to be running alongside that these projects that are mitigating that impact all of the time. And you know, that's where I think that, you know, as you're saying there, Rob, there is this importance that yes have the strategy yes build that together but at the same time start doing something now even if it's smaller um and you know it doesn't have to be necessarily related does it not only that but it's how you get to the strategy so i mean sam sinclair used this amazing phrase about it being a social process yes well how you get to a social process isn't to sit everyone down and go right guys we need to spend the next 18 months building a strategy what you do is you do something, you then scale it, you you create examples and you do the storytelling. You know, if you yeah. get marketers and storytellers to actually do their craft and do some amazing work, that is how you can create a social process. And that will then lead to an amazing strategy. So I think they're symbiotic. Yeah. I, th- I think there's there's... There's a nuance here between organizations, and perhaps this is the organizations that, that Sam Sinclair works most with, who have very large and complex value chains where they're doing damage to uh, biodiversity as part of, you know, the everyday part of that business, a lot in textiles, for example, and manufacturing and so on. Um, where, you know, clearly within those businesses, there's a, there's a big business re engineering task to be done. And that does take years. And it is absolutely right. Yeah. You have to take that seriously. You have to understand the damage that, that you're doing and you have to have a long term re engineering strategy to, 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 to start to change the way in which you do things. Now, Alongside that, though, every business, whether you're doing damage or, or 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 not, and we're all doing damage to biodiversity, we're all doing damage to the climate, just you know, just by being alive and being in in business, 
that is a fact. It's just a it's just shades of of how much damage you you are doing. You know, everybody has a role in starting to undo some of that damage now. Um, and these things are important because you know a, a, a keystone species that we save today is going to be easier and cheaper and more effective than a keystone species that we save in you know ten years than we save in ten years time. So it really is about doing everything all at once. You know you have to have that long term strategy, particularly if you're doing if you're doing considerable damage. But you have to have a a restoration strategy alongside that, um, and that should start, you know, the, the the second you 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 finish listening to the podcast, right? As you said at the, uh, at the beginning, in carbon, we talk a lot about, you know, reduce, remove, and restore. You have to reduce your carbon uh, footprint. You have to remove legacy carbon, and you and you have to restore the Earth's ability to to sequester carbon. You can use exactly those headings, I think, in biodiversity as well. You clearly have to reduce the damage that you're doing to biodiversity day by day. And a lot of that involves understanding it. And I think this is where Sam Sinclair was was focused. Um, but you can also remove legacy damage. Now, that might be within your own estate. You could, you know, if you're, there was a, a story um, a while ago of McDonald's replacing uh, natural grass with, with uh, plastic grass. Now, grass is not a wonderful biodiversity haven in and of itself, but it's certainly better than plastic grass. So, you know, if you've got plastic grass, remove that, plant some proper stuff. Um, but you can also do this more widely. And in other ecosystems, you can remove plastic, you can lose, remove electronic waste from ecosystems, uh, for example, and you can pay for that, um, you can pay for that with pinball. Um, and you have to restore the habitats and keystone biodiversity and all the stuff that Rob was just talking about to allow the the earth to get back into a into a natural balance and it's the remove and restore that you can start doing now you just need some money and speaking of money who who should be paying for um you know the restoration of biodiversity you know is it the organization i know what your answer is going to be by the way but is it the organizations that are doing the damage and as you said we're all doing damage as professionally and personally in our lives but ultimately you know what sort of uh, advice would you give to organizations who are you know looking for um for these solutions and and you know the the, the economics involved so the so the question is is who and how on the who it has to be a, a a coalition of governments corporates and individuals like we all have to play a role, play a role in this we all have to pay uh, uh, some of the some of the costs of this um i think where i absolutely agree with sam sinclair is that businesses and individuals can can act much more quickly than governments so government needs to put in the in the frameworks for this and it certainly needs to and it certainly needs to uh uh, direct taxation towards this but but what businesses and consumers can do is to, is to start to change their behavior straight away so how do you do that and how do you create those budgets is really interesting now there is a there's a, a principle in carbon uh, that we've had for many years called polluter pays which is where you work out your your carbon uh, output and you times that you know effectively by a carbon price and that's the that creates your budgets now we're starting to see that breakdown in in uh, carbon and 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 with really good results to be replaced by a what we call a money for money approach, which is instead you create the budgets by putting a, a percentage of your profits or percentage of your revenues into into broad carbon and biodiversity projects. Now, what this does is may is mean that as your business is more successful, you pay more towards restoring the the uh, uh restoring biodiversity and restoring nature 
um, and therefore ability to pay becomes much more important than than polluter pays as as a principle. So we would say yes, you know, businesses clearly in in our industry, businesses have to start paying for that. Um, they will it, you will have to do it eventually, right? I mean, I think this is the other this is the other thing because regulation and consumer demand and employee demand and investor demand will all conspire to make you do this. So the question is not if you do it, the question is when you do it and with whom and whether you get a first mover advantage and 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 whether you whether you properly wire that into to the way in which your your business works but it, it it will be something that everybody has to do and and so with those parallels then with carbon and as you say the regulation coming in and this requirement for businesses to either pace set you know get ahead of the game or to wait to be regulated into it how do how do organizations avoid the mistakes that the market has made with carbon? What have we learned from carbon that can kind of accelerate the success of biodiversity? Well, I think there's two big two big themes here. I think the first one is actually with carbon, we did take too much of a compliance focus on it. You know, everyone started measuring their carbon and working out what they had to do. And no one does their best work when they're doing compliance. No one got excited. No one grew their business. No business differentiated and found advantage because they complied by definition. So we can start actually by taking a brand or product storytelling approach to this. This podcast is perfect for this because actually we can, with biodiversity, because it is so beautiful, because it really moves us, because these projects are so great for generating content out of, we can actually of course do the compliance stuff that's necessary but very quickly make it part of our brand make it part of our marketing and make it something that causes us to win so that's one thing i think the other thing is is kind of linked to that the compliance focus led us to create this kind of false specificity this false accuracy you know we believed we could measure a ton of carbon completely accurately and then create a project somewhere else across the world that definitely protected a forest that sequestered enough tons of carbon over there on both sides of that coin it was wrong it was false false specificity and that's what's led to a that market kind of unraveling but huge greenwash risk so if we can avoid some of that kind of compliance focus avoid false specificity and actually make this something we do because it helps our business win and we do it with an impact focus and a brand focus rather than a compliance focus we can kind of leapfrog the problems of that market and do something really brilliant. And that will help us get the budgets we need to do it. So I think actually the way to the way to win this isn't to try and convince your finance director that we need to do it for compliance, but actually to very quickly draw a line to sales. What sort of trends are you seeing with organisations uh, buying buying into and supporting biodiversity solutions at the moment? Is it, you know, Samson Clare said the biodiversity strategies are, are have gone through the roof. Are you seeing the same sort of trends and interest in biodiversity solutions? Yeah, I mean, so two things on this. One is that uh, biodiversity is is the most popular thing that that pinball sells to, to clients and most most clients come in wanting biodiversity um uh, solutions the second is even those who are buying carbon are now buying mixed portfolios that include carbon and biodiversity 
projects. So, you know, I can't remember actually the last time we had a client come to us and say, we just want to buy some some carbon-based projects. We, we we don't do those sorts of red plus projects that that have um, been so controversial controversial in the past. Um but what what every client pretty much now comes to us and says is that we want to we have a money either money for money or a or a money for ton uh based budget. And what we want to buy is a mixed portfolio of stuff that both removes carbon from the atmosphere, potentially mitigates some carbon, um, and supports biodiversity and, and habitats and keystone species as as part of a an overall package. Uh I I'm struggling. Rob might um uh uh, correct me on this, but I don't think anybody has not done that um, over the over the last twelve months. So I don't think we've had a conversation that doesn't include biodiversity. Now, if we look at, and that's from a corporate decision making point of view, if we look then at um, what consumers and employees are interested in, mm. because one of the one of the ways in which Pinwell supports businesses on this is is being able to, as you know, because you do this, being able to put decisions of of what a business supports into the into the hands of of consumers or 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 customers or employees now we can see from that data that 70% of people choose biodiversity projects 70% um and so you know there are local where there's a local biodiversity project that performs best there are some uh uh biodiversity projects like sea turtle protection for example that seem to be globally globally relevant um and and there are some carbon projects like carbon removal, fantastic sort of uh, agricultural based enhanced rock weathering and so on, which really ignites the imagination. But almost always consumers choose the biodiversity projects. So I think that, and that's an in-market experience. So I think that backs up all of the, you know, desk-based research, which would tell you that that's what people are most in, uh, interested in. So the trend certainly is towards biodiversity. Trend in terms of behaviour, trend in terms of spend, and the trend in terms of regulation are all pointing in the biodiversity direction. And you're capturing this data, aren't you? You're like you say, you're able. You're in this kind of unique situation whereby you're able to see where the funds are going. I mean, we've got an event coming up and we're going to give um, our audience the vote as to where they, you know, the profit from yeah. that event will be going in. And it, it's, I didn't realise that you're able to see this in real time as to where the choices are, are being made. And, and therefore, yeah. that, that in itself is, you know, interesting insights for you to be sharing with brands, um, but also kind of drives more i suspect more projects of the type that people want to get involved with and and therefore builds the business case for actually you know look at the the the, the impact of this and and look at the the appetite for this um how can we be doing more of that so it kind of becomes self perpetuating i suspect once organizations get into this and they're seeing the engagement and they're seeing the preferences um tell us a little bit more about how that data is supporting your business so i think the you're right and it's fascinating and it goes to rob's point about compliance i suppose because when you see something as as a tax or you see something as a as a compliance issue i think most businesses are wired to how can we how can we do this as cheaply uh, um uh, and and uh, sort of efficiently as as possible when you view something as a an opportunity a competitive advantage now it might be competitive in terms of attracting the best staff attracting and retaining customers attracting high value customers 
when you when you view something as a competitive uh, opportunity, you look at it totally differently because you no longer say, "How can we do this?" You know, um, in a in a in a bog standard and cheap way. You say, "How can we go above and beyond? How can we get a real angle on this? How can we?" bring people with us in this in this process and that's what we see as you know within within the pinwall client base is that all of our all of our customers are looking at this from a from an opportunity point of view and not a yeah. compliance point of view yeah i mean so, it's embedding it into the brand right it's embedding it into the values of the organization and the people that make up that organization Entirely. And it becomes something that, you know, we talk about taking it out of the pages of the annual report and into the lived experience. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, one of the things that um, that Sam Sinclair said that that sort of, you know, made me really sad was, I can't tell you who any of these people are because they all have NDAs. Yeah. And I sort of, I mean, you know, almost brought tears to my eyes, right? Because if you're keeping this behind NDAs and you're keeping this into, you know, at best, you you know, you, you sort of refer to it in the annual report, it's a wasted opportunity. It's a wasted opportunity for, for the brand because, you know, you ought to be, you ought to be, you know, sharing and celebrating this and bringing people with you and involving people in the process. It's also not a wasted opportunity for, you know, for, for, for society as a whole, because yeah. it stops us from learning what other people are doing and understanding yeah. where some of the successes and failures are um, and and learning from those and moving forward together. And I think, you know, if you see this as something which, and, and by the way, when I talk about competition in this, I don't mean I don't mean competitive from an IP perspective. I don't mean, you know, yeah. this is about having our own intellectual property and doing something that we almost lock everybody else out from doing. I mean, it's competitive because it's about being able to compete. Yes. Now, just before Davos uh, this year, almost half of chief executives said that they believe their business will cease to exist within within a decade without reinvention, will cease to exist within a decade. And they identified the climate crisis has been the major driver of physical, reputational and competition-related risk. Now, yeah. I think I think you can interchange climate crisis with biodiversity crisis there because, because it is the same. It yeah. is the same thing. You know, major driver of physical, but reputational and competition-related risks. So we can see this in consumer behavior. We can see this in in staff behavior where people decide where they where they want to where they want to work. We see it a lot in business to business, you know, almost yeah. You know, the, the main area of our client base is in professional services, business to business related um, uh, industries. And and they see this as being a real key driver of, 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 of sales and a real key driver of, of customer retention. And we can start to understand in the data, you know, so for Pinwell, we can start to understand you know, what's important to people in different parts of the world, what's important to different cohorts of staff and um, and consumers, and what resonates best with with individual brands. And we can see those big sort of macro trends as, as well. So this will become, and I think this is where marketeers can get a handle on this, this will become a key driver of, of customer uh, recruitment and retention and customer behavior and understanding that and optimizing your sustainability strategy towards it yeah. will start to be something that that becomes a, a competitive necessity rather than a compliance task. Yeah. And the most progressive businesses, you know, are putting this under the CMO and 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 understanding how it drives profit within their business. So that's interesting about the data. Have you got any examples 
of brands, organizations that have done testing or where this data has come into play that has helped them kind of understand the business case for doing more? Yeah, it, indeed. And there's one really fascinating one, which is uh, a client that uh, tested this in a in a standard control versus exposed um, uh, way. So as they simulated a new product, a new customer onboarding, and for the exposed group, they put the pinwheel project uh, selection uh, in the in the onboarding flow. So ask the customer, we're going to support one of these projects. We want you to tell us which one. And in the control group, they didn't. Now, for both groups at the end of the at the end of the flow, they asked our uh, views of the sustainable credentials of the brand. Now, two fascinating things. One is that the people exposed to Pimwell, as we would have expected, were significantly more likely to say that they thought that brand had sustainability credentials than the control group who hadn't been exposed. The really fascinating thing is that even the group of customers who were exposed, who skipped the question, so they were asked, which project do you want us to invest in? And they said, I don't mind, skip this bit. Even those people were significantly more likely to say that the brand had greater sustainability credentials than those who weren't exposed at all. So just being asked your opinion, just just having it put in front of you, being asked your opinion, how, taking that moment to decide whether you want to engage or not, just that is enough to improve your sustainability credentials in the eyes of your customers even more so if those customers go on to choose a choose a project. Also, from a, you know, talking about the opportunity for marketing and also internal communications here, if people can, if people are passionate about the projects that their their organizations are supporting, then, you know, they're more likely to ask for updates. They're more likely to ask where we are. And, and that story of ongoing conversation and progress is so much more natural, isn't it, when it comes to something that you're passionate about? I mean, I, I, read, I probably doubt that many employees run up and go, right, what's the update on carbon emissions? You know, where are we? From a sort of, you know, because it, it seems kind of technical and scientific and that you can't physically see it, whereas you can talk about the progress of restoration projects and you can actually see, you know, the progress and you can see where you're doing good, which makes makes it really appeal to that emotional side of humans doesn't it um where you know we really need to be able to tell those stories and show that we the good that organizations are doing here yeah. it's it's it does it does all of those things and it creates you know it's an opportunity for collaboration and you know every hr director or chief per person officer that i've met uh talks about collaborating with staff and involving staff and, and it being a two-way conversation. And every chief marketing officer I've met talks about collaboration with clients and that yeah. being a two-way relationship and so on. And that's what that's what this does. I mean, that's that's our overwhelmingly our view, and we've you know built a whole business around that, is is saying, look, look, if you turn this into something that we collaborate on together, you create a moment in time between business and stakeholder be it staff, be it, be it customer, where we're going to collaborate to do something good, where the beneficiary, where the beneficiary of what we've decided to do is going to be the planet yeah. and all of us and society at large, and and that collaboration might take a few might take a few seconds, but doing so is enormously powerful because not only am I involved and you're right, I'm then I'm then invested in well, what happened to that choice? Where how what impact are we making? Did it work as we expected to do? If not, what are we doing instead? But 
I'm also, you know, understanding a bit more about the issues, because if I'm asked my opinion between do you think A or B, I'm naturally, you know, I can't not weigh those options against each other. So I'm starting to understand more about, well, what are the problems and what are some of the some of the solutions? So it drives biodiversity literacy, it drives climate literacy in that in in that sense. And it means that I'm complicit in the decision. So I'm yeah. more likely to feel connected to it, to talk about it, to remember it, to tell customers and other staff, to tell, you know, that person down the pub when they say, is it a good company to work for or to or or to you know make a recommendation for the product on google or whatever so it you're bringing people in and you're 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 recruiting them as a as a collaborator in the process rather than being a passive passenger mm. and we know that you know our brains are hit by billions of data points every day and we filter out all of the things that we don't feel that we need to know in that moment but as soon as you need to know as soon as you, you as soon as you're asked a question about it, you register it because you need to start. You 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 need to answer the question, even if the, even if the answer is I don't really mind. You're engaged in the, in that point, and that means people remember it and they feel much more passionate about it. Yeah, and it's it's really powerful, isn't it? You feel that your 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 choices are actually doing something for the greater good, and you are becoming part of the solution. Really becoming part of the solution, as opposed to just you know thinking that you are. Yeah, and it it means that you know we've got lots of anecdotal evidence of this, and we're trying to codify some of it. But you know, we see that when people start to engage and they make a decision, even about something that might be happening on the other side of the world, but more often than not, it's happening somewhere reasonably close to home. They start then asking themselves lots of other questions about what else I can do. You know, we've you know social media comment and 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 emails from people who say well i chose this project and then i went home and thought well what can i do in my garden or what can i do on my yeah. in my on my window box you know to to make life a little bit better for the diversity which biodiversity which is close to me and 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 that's what i mean about this sort of you know it starts with individual consumer action it moves through corporates and it gets to gov- and it gets to government and it flows back the other way as well mm. it requires everybody to take individual action corporate action and 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 societal action in order to in order to solve this crisis and if we do that then you know to sam sinclair's point we can see the results reasonably reasonably yeah know, nature is really really resilient yeah it just needs a bit of a helping hand. Yeah. And we all need to be helping wherever we can. I think that was the that was the the, the key takeaway was that yes, it is resilient and yes, it is powerful and amazing, but it does need support, you know, and it does, and we do need to be driving that support and taking that action with some urgency. Yeah. With a lot of urgency. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So guys. As returning guests, we know that you've answered our three quick fire questions before. So we're going to mix it up a little bit. And our first question to you is, can biodiversity restoration save the planet? Yes, it absolutely can. Um, I mean, I risk getting super nerdy, but almost every single biodiversity restoration project that we have also is a nature-based solution on climate and vice versa. Absolutely can. The key thing is marketers can grab this. So I, I do think, um, you know, I was hoping you'd actually ask me, can marketers, can marketing take Because the answer is yes, but don't be passive. Don't leave it to a sustainability expert. Go and make this part of your job because you can absolutely nail this and push this forward. Yeah. And if biodiversity, I guess, isn't part of 
the sustainability strategy and agenda. This is where marketers educated and aware can be saying, you know what, here's something we can be doing. It's good for brand. It's good for employee engagement, working across the value chain of the business, bringing those key stakeholders on board, collaborating internally to drive something and say, hey, why why don't we introduce this into the work that we are doing? Um, it's it's kind of a, a quick win, isn't it? But a really powerful uh, win for both the brand and the planet. And and you can start small. I think is the is the other really interesting thing about this. In the you, you know you can do it, you can test it, you can see the results, and then yeah. you can start to scale it. Um, and and it isn't a replacement for um, uh, for really looking in detail at your value chain. You know what. What we're really not saying is that you can you can do this and you can continue to sort of remain oblivious of, to the damage that you're that you're doing. Right? That's not the case. No. But it's something that you can do now alongside that. Yeah. Um, and the sooner you do it, the the the, the sooner it will ha- will pay dividends to your business, and the sooner it will pay dividends to nature um, as well. And it will mean that the long term task, you know, the, the 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 big task that we all have to do over the next ten or twenty years becomes easier the more we start doing it now so yeah. it's about bringing forward some of that spend and not kicking it down down the road to to tomorrow when it's going to be more expensive yeah and i think that's so valid for you to add that point in and caveat that gavin that this that piece that you said at the beginning the reduction piece is still absolutely critical we need to be reducing impact um, and harm to biodiversity and everything but this is something that you can be doing whilst you're doing all of the other stuff yeah exactly and i think you know we, we've we got to be aware of the you know the sort of the curse of counting uh, you know as yeah. it you know as it were um and i mean if you know if you're sort of uh if you if your neighbor was you know i don't know pumping sewage out onto your out onto your lawn you'd want them to start cleaning it up wouldn't you you wouldn't say if they said oh we're just trying to work out how many liters of surge are actually going onto your lawn at the moment <laughs> yeah. and you know we'll be doing that for the next we'll be doing that for the next two years and we're really concentrating on reducing the amount of sewage you'd be saying well i think you need to do something you know to start clearing clearing up clearing up this shit <laughs> and i think that's the you know that's the same it's the same thing on by on, on biodiversity and climate right you you yeah. have to you have to stem the flow the flow to stretch the metaphor but you but you have to start cleaning it up now and 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 people can do that and they can do that today yeah perfect and so our next question is what do you hope business looks like in 10 years time i hope i, I hope business in 10 years time has a uh, on, on actually on, on every level has a longer term view of of uh, of of business success you know um uh, and i hope that businesses understand the decisions that they make now not just in terms of uh, climate and biodiversity but on many many scales will have a a big impact on their ability to compete and their ability to do business and their ability to drive you know, returns for shareholders in five and 10 and 20 and 50 years time. Yeah. I mean, whilst that is, this becomes core to the business, you know, no longer is this a, you know, don't worry guys, we've hired a chief sustainability officer. We've got the sustainability team um, and, and the rest of the business carries on as usual. Now I'm looking in 10 years time. I want to see this be really deeply embedded into the business. It's what we sell. It's how we sell it. It's what we do. Perfect. Wonderful. 
And I'll ask questions to you and I'll start with Rob and then go to Gavin. If you could give one piece of advice to marketers who have come across Pinwheel and are thinking about building the business case to take to their CMO or, or CFO to get involved in biodiversity restoration solutions, what would that be, Rob? Just know the fact that 70% of your customers or your staff will pick a biodiversity project before they will pick a carbon project. And it is absolutely the way you win. Nice and concise, Gavin. I, I I would say just test it, you know, like I said on anything really in, in, in this sort of space. You know, do something, do it small, see what value it adds, you know, add it to your next new business pitch, attach it to a staff event, you know, see the see the see the results. We've never had a Pinball's been in business for a few years now. We have a hundred percent client retention because mm. it works. Wonderful. Well, just a big thank you for coming on and um, wrapping up our series on biodiversity and nature. Um, great to have you back on the show again and to dive deeper into the practicalities. And I think it's worked really um, in harmony, you know, very harmonious with with the the conversations that we've had with Alex and indeed Dr. Sam Um to wrap this all up and, and give marketers everything that they need really to, to be thinking about how they can be getting involved with this. So thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Cam Marketing Save the Planet podcast. We hope that you're enjoying these conversations just as much as we are. And if you are enjoying them, then please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast channel and indeed to share the podcast with your colleagues, your friends, your family. Because the more people we can get engaged in these conversations, the better. You'll find the podcast on all the usual podcast platforms, and you'll also find it on the Marketing Society podcast and the Global Player. For more information about the podcast and indeed the work we do, please visit www.canmarketingsavetheplanet.com. There you will find information about our latest books, You'll find information about our online sustainable marketing training hub and the training and advisory services that we offer. And you'll also find our learning zone, which is an absolute resource hub filled with all things sustainable marketing. So we look forward to hearing more from you and we look forward to catching up soon.